from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents interviews of ordinary people who choose the Baha'i faith as a way of life. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Brandy Watson whose father taught at Wiley College at the same time that Professor Tolson led his great debate team, as depicted in the 2007 movie The Great Debaters, starring Denzel Washington. Brandy describes how he became a Baha'i in Austin, Texas in 1960. I started the interview by asking Brandy where he grew up, and what was it like growing up there. I was born in Virginia, but a Richmond, Virginia. My dad was teaching at Virginia Union University. He was let go there, and, and we moved to Marshall, Texas, which is in East Texas, or about uh, 30 miles from the Louisiana line. And for, so from three years on, my growing up years were in Marshall, Texas. I didn't have anything, of course, to compare it to. My essential relationships, of course, with my parents and, and teachers in the school, the school certainly in the mid-30s, which is when that was, was certainly uh, separate based on race. But our teachers were very devoted, had some very good friends there. I felt highly uh, protected by my family. My, my dad was early on there, became president of the NAACP chapter there in that area, which is something that nobody else would take on. Why is that? Because of the danger. Was there- uh, when there were lynchings, and other mob action there on the part of the Anglos. They were very volatile, very active, always held a threat. He, he taught at uh, Wiley College. He was in the social science department and later became the head of the social science department. But very active in the community and very, very highly esteemed throughout his entire 34 years of his tenure there at Wiley College. Now, did you see the movie with... I know exactly what you mean. The debaters? Uh, that, that movie was about the college where I grew up and the town where I grew up. Professor Tolson, the coach of the debate team there, was uh, highly distinguished, not only because of the debate team, but because of uh, he was also a dramatist, a writer, as well as a lecturer. And almost any one of those could have gotten him into almost anyone's Hall of Fame. In, in other words, that was almost <laughs> my story. So the, just to recap, the uh, movie, I forget what the movie was called, but the, the star was Denzel Washington. It, well, for most people, the star was Denzel Washington. For me, the star was Professor Melvin Tolson, <laughs> because that's who I was seeing. Right, right. And the movie was The Great Debaters. That's right. And that's right. I have a magazine article that was written 10 years ago, the title of the, of the magazine article is The Great Debaters. 
and the movie was entirely faithful to that to this magazine article, which I have right in front of me right now. So the the movie itself was almost a documentary in that it was very faithful to to the reality of what happened, of how things were, how things happened, the, the talents and abilities, uh, and they were all real people. James Farmer, you may remember, was 14 years old on that debate team. Mm-hmm. What was his father's position in the town? I forget. His father was on the faculty at Wiley College. That's what I thought, yeah. As well as my dad. The debate team, of course, was, was ongoing over about 15 years. Mm-hmm. They won a 70 three out of 74 debates, uh, and it started in the, in the late 1920s. Well, my dad went there in 19, late 1935 and 36, so the movie was set in 35. So the, the setting of the movie was one year before dad moved um, my older brother and, and my uh, mother down with, uh, with him there. Mm-hmm. I was always involved in things, doing things, a lot of Played a lot of sandlot football and, and uh, a lot of tussles and scuffles with, with my uh, growing up buddies. Had an incident uh, downtown and it happened August 3rd, 1950. We had just bought a 1948 Buick. I worked at the drugstore downtown. My brother and I took turns working on Saturdays and uh, we rode bicycles all over town. We delivered medicines for the, the one pharmacy that was owned by Afro, uh, well, he's a minister, but uh, he owned the drugstore. But anyway, I, it was my Saturday off, and I went downtown with my younger brother, who was four years younger. I was 17, he was 13, and got into an incident downtown about a parking place with a couple of merchants, and um, happened to have had a, a hunting knife in the car, and, and uh, one of these merchants, it looked like about Middle East Anglo. They uh, came over, threatening. I took out this hunting knife. It was in the car because when my buddies and I had swiped a, a watermelon off a watermelon truck the day before, and we had the knife in there, uh, we had a face-off there about that uh, parking place. And it's very interesting to me as I think back on it. If I had come along two seconds faster... I would have gone past this car that was backing out his parking lot in downtown Marshall there. So there would have been no incident. If I'd come two seconds later, then the other merchant who was going to take that parking place uh, would, have been a, would have been ahead of me, and there would have been no incident. I was charged with disturbing the peace, carrying a deadly weapon, and threatening assault, and was put under a $1,600 peace bond. Now, this was two weeks before I would have entered college. Oh, wow. Uh, the third thing that happened is that the coach who had been at Wilder for 25 years, coach, his name was Pops Long. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember uh, as, a, as a tiny toddler running around the campus, and I remember on occasion when Pops Long would see me, and say, you going to play football for me, little what? Yeah, Pop. Yeah, Pop. <laughs> but as it turns out, 15 years later, Pops Long had been terminated from Wiley because he had supported some of the students in their strike. And as it turns out, he was at Texas College in Tyler, Texas, 60 miles away. Well, we knew that I was going to be provoked into getting into more trouble and breaking that peace bond, which my dad didn't have anything like that kind of money. I think when he started off, he was probably getting about $60 a month. 
So how does the peace bond work? If a person gets into any kind of legal circumstance again or, or disturbs the peace or is arrested on any charge, then the bond, which is put up by someone who, who has the money, uh, will be broken. And it would have been forfeited. So you ended up going to Texas College in Tyler, Texas? That's right. And what was that like? It was quite good. They're sister schools. They're both supported by the Methodist Church, one AME and one CME. I always got them all confused. But anyway, in a way, it was interesting that I was actually away from home going to college. I really think, as I think back on that, that was a positive thing. It was a good thing. It was what you needed, huh? It turned out to be a very positive thing, because in college I was on the uh, track team and had won a national track meet, and I was also a captain of the debate team there in college. How did you get involved with the debate team? One of my professors, Professor John Paul Jones, my English professor, was the coach of the debate team there, and I took an interest in it, and we worked at it. And I was good enough in his eyes that uh, he made me captain of the team. The team was very successful. So how were you compared to Wiley College? The debate team was not continuous. Professor Tolson was at Wiley. He went there in 1922, which was certainly long long before we were there, and was terminated in 1947. Now why was he terminated? That is a mystery that I do not know, and I do not know of anyone who does know why he was terminated, Uh, except that uh, we have a good idea that he was such a radical thinker and a very, very active activist. In fact, he was very much involved in and took on his own private activity of trying to organize the farm laborers into a union so they could get better wages and better uh, working circumstances. Now, this is the the black as well as the white. And for this, at that time, we know the rage was about people who were communists and uh, what kind of stigma that had. So most of us who think about that think that even those who loved, and and he was greatly loved, Prop Tolson, that somehow this threat was so much that he was terminated. And that's what I think. In spite of the, the debate team, if you saw the movie, you saw that the debate team defeated some of the most prestigious colleges and universities in the country, mm-hmm. including Harvard, including uh, University of Michigan, including University of Oklahoma, including uh, the traveling debate team from Oxford, England. The national champions that year was uh, University of Southern California. But they, they, in the movie, they had them debating the Harvard University team. But they did not really stretch things because even though Harvard was not the national champions that year, they had defeated Harvard anyway, as well as the University of Southern California. But they could not be the national champions because they were not part of a, a league of uh, college uh, debate teams. That was the excuse that was given, but that team was uh, extremely successful and some very prestigious people came through there, including James Farmer, who was in the movie, Yep, I remember. Uh, who later formed CORE, Congress for Racial Equality. And he got his beginnings from uh, his debate activity there at Wiley under Prof. Tolson, and who felt invincible because any time 
he was in a debate. He felt people were really debating against Prof. Tolson, and they couldn't possibly win. Whatever happened to Professor Tolson? He went to Langston, Oklahoma, and joined the faculty at Langston University and was uh, elected to be the mayor of the town of Langston for two terms. And uh, he was later named the Port Laureate of Liberia. Not that he traveled to Liberia, but uh, he was a very prolific writer. I can recall when he used to come and, and prop his feet up on our kitchen table and in the middle of the afternoon knock his feet off the table. <laughs> but he was always talking about some of his writings. And I'm, the one that I remember most profoundly was a book that he was working on. It was called Rendezvous with America. And I have to say it the way that he said it, <laughs> otherwise it doesn't sound, doesn't sound quite the same. He uh, wrote that, plus a column in the newspaper, the Harlem Renaissance, probably one of his most famous things. He and my dad were just extremely close, just very, very close. We lived right across the street from one another. One of the things I missed in the movie was he had a, an interesting laugh, <laughs> which I don't think anybody could duplicate. So, Brandy, what happened after college? Uh, well, my, my college was interrupted by my career in the military uh, after my sophomore year and after I'd won the national, the 100-yard dash, and the 220-yard dash, and the NAIA. In fact, the very first year of the NAIA, which is National Association of Intercollegiate Athletics, and the first year they had it was 1952, and I won the 100-yard dash and the 220-yard dash. Uh, as a result of that, some uh, good friends of my dad thought that I had a chance to go to uh, a large university. And uh, I did. They, they worked it out. So I went to the University of Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania. And I had to be there one year before I could uh, run on be part of the varsity team there. I thought I was on uh, deferment from, from the Army. This was in, uh, I went there in 1952. But Christmas of 1953, I received my draft notice, so that interrupted my college. So then I, I went into the Army. Since I was there, I wanted to be a paratrooper. That was allowed normally, like for people who had a three-year term, because they, they didn't want to go through all that paratrooper training for a person who's going to be in for just two years. But anyway, they allowed it. So I was a paratrooper. So I was in the military for two years, three days, 17 hours, and 27 minutes. But who was counting? <laughs> <laughs> I was counting every day. <laughs> but then when I was released, I just went by Texas College to visit, and I really wanted to go back to, to the University of Pittsburgh, but I just went to visit the old college, and my old coach, Giles Wright, saw me, and, and we just fell into a very brief conversation, and uh, he asked if I would go back to Texas College instead, so. And I did. So I just went back to Texas College. So that's why I didn't graduate until 1957. And then, and then of course, went on to University of Texas Law School. And I was not successful in law school. I did not maintain uh, the grade court average. And after the first year, I had to leave. So I, I stayed there in Austin, Texas, and worked and decided to go back again after I'd been out for a year. Uh, this time I went for two years. My grade point average was not up to par, so I never did finish. Got a government job in, in Oklahoma. What kind of job was it? 
I was working at Tinker Air Force Base as a management analyst, one of the larger B-52 repair facilities in the country. Because I was involved in Baha'i work. All right, let's let's backtrack a little bit. How is it that you ran into the Baha'i faith in the first place? In 1960, as usual, there was the 10-year census. I was in law school at the time. I heard about the census. I needed money. I was I had my GI Bill, but I still needed money. I, I had a little tiny apartment there, and I went down for the for the test. There were oh maybe twelve or fourteen people sitting waiting their turn to take the exam to see if they could be a census taker. As I was sitting there, there's a I just call a little old lady. And she spoke to me very kindly. I was more concerned with uh, whether I was going to be able to get a job there. She spoke to me again. I, I answered <laughs> out of courtesy, more or less. Just very friendly. So I thought, okay, nice little old lady. Well, as it turned out, I qualified to be a crew leader. And as crew leader, I had three days of training, and I had a crew. And there were 19 people in my crew, and I had to train them. So within that crew was the same little old lady. Her name was Musette Christian. I was the expert because I had three days of training. I was the one to take each one of my crew members to, on their first two or three houses to be sure that they did everything properly. And they had a big book. When I say a uh, big book, large pages. The book was about two feet by two and a half feet with thick pages in it. And there were several categories with little dots. And as they found out information in each household, each page represented a household, depending on the condition of the house, the, the valuation of it, the estimated value, the number of people living in it, and the occupation of the people, all those, all those were little dots that a person would, would uh, fill in as they interviewed each one. I took on the first, and she did very well. And the third house we went to, this was going to be the last one that I was going to accompany her. The house was so old, and and, uh, the weeds in the front yard were about five feet high. There was no pathway leading to the house. And she uh, started to go into the house. Now, the house was actually only about between two and three blocks from where I lived. And I'd never seen, as I passed the house, uh, I never saw any lights on any, and just never paid any attention to it. Anyway, she started up to this house. And I said, oh, Musette, you can tell from this house that nobody lives here. All you do is just on the page with that that house address, there's a little dot you mark, the house is uninhabitable, and you move on to the next one. She said, oh, no, no, no. Mrs. So-and-so, she mentioned the name of the, of the woman who lived there, and she had gone out on her first houses just to get acquainted with the people to be sure that she did well. And she had gone to this house, and there was an elderly, disabled woman who lived in that house. And the reason that there were no pathways to the front of the house is that she had two grown sons. This woman had two grown sons. And they always used the back way. They, they always came in and went through the, the back, through the alley. So here she went in, because uh, she did very well again during the interviews and so forth. 
and I had to take stock of myself. Now, if she had followed my direction and, and had not gone into that house, then we would have missed three people. It was later determined that if each census taker in the 1960 census had missed one person, the census would have, would have been off by the total population of the state of Nevada. So she saved me. She went ahead and kept from having me make her make, make a mistake of missing three people. After the census, I thought that everybody was overworked and underpaid, and I gave a, a party, a dinner party at a Mexican restaurant for, for everyone and their spouses if they were married. And at that dinner party, another person in my crew, her name was Gloria Wilson, and she was a very attractive very attractive young woman. She was a widow. She had some young children, aged about from six, five, and three, I think. Something But I was very much attracted to her. And Musette and I, we struck up our friendship. She had invited Gloria to a Baha'i fireside, and it was in the in a white neighborhood. So, what's a fireside? <laughs> It, it's a term used by Baha'is, probably borrowed from uh, FDR. It's a gathering where Baha'is would invite people to, who might have an interest or who might be drawn into taking an interest in the Baha'i faith. And there were such gatherings, firesides, in Austin, Texas. There were very few Baha'is. There were only about, about 10 Baha'is in Austin, Texas at that time. And at the dinner meeting, I can recall that Musette was at one end. It was a long, long table, and there was several conversations. At one end, Musette was talking, and, and I learned later that she's trying to get people to come to a fireside gathering. And one of the people who wanted to go to that was Gloria Wilson, this, this young woman, very attractive young woman. Well, I had invited Gloria to a movie. I had an old Buick convertible. The top was so ragged that probably didn't even know uh, what color it was. But I'd invited Gloria to a movie on a Sunday afternoon. And so when I went by to pick her up for the movie, she said, I'd like to, for us to go to this Baha'i fireside. I never heard Baha'i. Didn't know what fireside was. Had no idea. And she didn't have much of an idea. It's just that she'd been invited by Musette, and she wanted to go and see what it was. She wanted to take up the invitation. Well, I thought, gee whiz, it's, it's one thing to be outdone by some smooth cat with a with a nice, sleek, expensive car and, and uh, fancy clothes and so forth. But but uh, uh, well, anyway, it wasn't your uh, normal crowd. No, not indeed. <laughs> it was not. Anyway, I, I she wanted to go. And I thought, all right, I'll just, I'll just, I'll take you by. And we had the address, and it was in a white neighborhood, which was totally unfamiliar. And we had to drive around for almost half an hour to try to find the the house. It was in a residential area. When we finally found the house, it was about three o'clock in the afternoon. I thought, well, maybe this will be over pretty soon, and I'll come back for you. Well, because of my upbringing, I I got out and and I opened the door for her to get out. As I did that, she said, well, won't you go in? Won't you go in with me? 
Well, I had no intention of going because I'd not been invited. I mean, I I knew Musette, but she had she had not invited me. I guess she thought I was too wrapped up in my college and felt out of my league. At that instant, I said, "Okay, yes, I'll go in," which I did. We went in, and Musette was there, and she said there was going to be a speaker. Well, she was a speaker that day. And as I recall, Ned, this was this was in June. It was very hot. It was about three o'clock in the afternoon. As we went in, and uh, we were very well greeted, and we were the only two guests, so to speak. So Musette was a speaker, and she began to talk. And in her talk, she mentioned that about the return of Christ. I stopped and I said, "Wait, why? Why do you say this is the return of Christ?" And she spoke a little bit about Baha'u'llah, and and I couldn't pronounce the name, so they helped me pronounce it. <laughs> all in all, good spirits and all. Baha'u'llah being the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith. Yes, that that was the thing uh, that caught my attention, and had me asking questions. Well, I continued to ask questions. I said, "Well, why do you say that?" And they would share certain things at Baha'u'llah, and they they helped me pronounce his name, Baha'u'llah. And they would tell me certain things that Baha'u'llah had said about the oneness of all all the prophets, dealers of, of the religion, of the one religion of God. And we just kept going. And I, and I kept interrupting. And I said, well, what did Christ say about that? And they shared some things from the Bible, some prophecies and prophetic verses from the Bible. Now, the thing that, that's really striking to me, even as I think back on it, for me to interrupt someone who's talking was entirely out of character because it was not not in my makeup to interrupt anyone. But I had to know anytime anybody mentioned that return of Christ, I was I was going to pay attention. But here, she had something. It seemed substantial. It was things that I was some verses that I'd heard of in the Bible, but never had made any tie-in uh, that it was anything significant about the return of Christ. But the return of Christ. Was all was was something that was just very very strong with me. I had grown up in the Methodist Church and, and went to Sunday school and, and uh, was an usher and, and uh, so I was, I was very active in in the church. And my mother was an organist at, at this Methodist Church and, and, and the choir director, so I had close association with the church. So I continued to ask questions, and they continued to share things with me. Toward the end, we finally decided we would go, and by the time we were, we were ready to go, it was dark, which gives you an idea from 3 o'clock in the afternoon in Austin, Texas, in June, until dark, yeah. which was uh, what, nine about o'clock? 8 o'clock. We yeah. were there, and I had no idea we were staying quite that long. And then they invited me back, and then I would go by to see Musette. She lived only about three blocks from me. So I would go by to visit and she would tell me more things and share more things. And then she would show me things in, in the books. And every day, instead of studying my law books, I was <laughs> studying things about Baha'i faith. Now, I really am not saying that because of my involvement with Baha'i faith is the reason why I bombed out of uh, law school. I'm not saying that at all. It may or may not be true. I would go by to see uh, Musette, and she'd always share things with me. She wouldn't greet me with, how was your day, and how was school, anything like that. She'd start off with, you know, you had a question, such and such, and then she'd show me something in a book. And, and 
So we would, almost every day I'd go by to see her. And very often she wanted to go and visit other people in the community. Now a lot of people thought that she had some cash of wealth, that she was pretty well off. She really was not. She really was not, because she was always giving gifts to people. And I'd drive around in my, my old beat-up convertible, and she's always taking gifts to people and, and doing things for people. As a Baha'i, this, this is the way that Baha'is do things. So that's with me even to this day. One day, it was in September of that year, and uh, Musette had gone by, and she had talked and enlightened me and, and answered certain questions that I had. And then I said, well, what do I do? It actually took her by surprise. I think that somehow in her mind she had decided that after about three or four years, maybe I would decide that I would like to, to be a buy. Here it had been uh, three months, and I didn't know what to do, I mean, except to just keep going by and, and uh, have her talk to me. So for the first time, she was speechless. So that was September 30th of 1960. So Musette and I continued and to just go and visit people and talk and do favors for people in, in around Austin in the community. We'd go to San Antonio. We'd go to different places. Mm-hmm. Those were my earliest days uh, as a Baha'i. That's how I took it to be that uh, this is how we're supposed to be, that we're supposed to visit one another and be very loving and caring. Yeah. That's, that's the community that I grew up in. So you said that after you left law school, you went and got a government job yes. mm-hmm. in Oklahoma, was it? Yes, Oklahoma City. Oklahoma City. And how long were you there for? I went there the spring of uh, 1962. I should mention that before, one of the things that I did, I worked with a mechanic there, his name is Mr. Langdon. I'd go to a church, and I was also in a choir, so I was very active in this in this Methodist church. There was someone in the choir who was a more profound bass than I was, and that was Mr. Langdon. He was just the most honest, straightforward, never cheat anybody, uh, not even a hint of it. And, and I certainly liked working with him. Not everybody paid him, but he still do just outstanding work on cars. Many people just really fully trusted him. And I learned how to work on cars there. I even overhauled my own car there, an old Buick that I had. <laughs> but uh, we sang in the choir together. So I, I continued to, to go to that church and sing in the choir. And even after I joined the Baha'i Faith, I would continue to visit the church. But I let it be known. But I, I wanted to see the minister. I let him know that uh, I would still attend the church, but that I was a Baha'i. So I, I had a, we scheduled an appointment for me to, to visit with the minister. We were sitting in his study, and I told him that I'm now Baha'i. And he, he said, oh. And I said, I was still visiting the church and still singing the choirs, and I was part of the Methodist Youth Fellowship. There was activities there, and I'll continue to do that. And he, he took out a, a pad. He didn't say anything, just, just made some notes on it. I don't know what he wrote. But then I said, but I will not be giving any more money to the church I'll be giving to the to Baha'i Fund. <laughs> he just said, oh. <laughs> did he know anything about the Baha'i faith? He, he did not indicate that he knew. 
my, I can only surmise that he felt that this is something new, an offshoot kind of thing, probably not fully legitimate, but just something to draw people's attention away, uh, probably a political thing. In other words, I can only surmise because he felt the loss, I know, because I was so active in the church doing, doing so many things. He didn't ask any questions of me, and yet I felt that any minister should know something about Baha'i faith, even though in 1960 there were many things that people did not know about Baha'i faith. Some had never even heard anything about it. I knew that from my, my teaching efforts. I don't know what he really what he really knew, but I continued to go to the church. I continued to sing in the choir. In fact, one of the people in the choir with me was the president of Houston Tillotson College there in Austin, Texas. But anyway, so I continued to work with Mr. Langer. I really enjoyed it. He's just a man of, of impeccable honesty. So you mentioned him because something of having to do with you being in Oklahoma City. I'm not sure what the link was there. Or you just wanted to relate that story to about Mr. Langdon because you had remembered I, I just wanted to relate that because yeah. he's, he's one of the very significant people... In your life? In, in my life now. Yeah. Oh, that was one of the jobs. I earned some extra money. Mm-hmm. One of the other ways was waiting tables at, at a downtown hotel, the Adolphus Hotel downtown here in Austin. And after I had uh, enrolled in Baha'i Faith, the very next Christmas, it was a Christmas Eve, I was, I was working as a, as a waiter in the hotel. And there was an occasion when uh, this Christmas Eve, we worked late, and, and the waiters and, and the waitresses and all decided to go out and just have a little New Year's Eve party. Because I didn't drink, but I, I drank my 7-Up. <laughs> and later on that, that night when I went home, in a little tiny apartment, I turn up the heater. The gas does not all burn when, when I turn the heat all, uh, just a little little heater there in this little tiny apartment. It must have been about 3 o'clock. I was lying on my, on my bed, and I got up to go to the bathroom. That's the last thing I remember until I was picking myself up off the floor, or trying to. And what happened was I passed out. had no idea. I just passed out while I was standing there in, in the bathroom. And I fell, and I was hurting all over this the pain just was all over my body i didn't know what was hurt except that all of me was hurt tried to de- decide what had happened and it took me about five or six minutes to pick myself up from the floor and then i found that i could move my arms and legs but i could not turn my head well what had happened was i i'd fallen and my neck had hit the face bowl and uh, I broke my neck. Oh, my God. I was in the poverty by myself. I, I, I just didn't know from anything what had happened, didn't know what to do. I couldn't sit down, but, and I couldn't move my neck at all. So then I surmised that my neck was broken, which it was. So I sat there, on my, then I sat down on my bed. It took me a while even to sit down. And there was a doctor in town, I called him. Now, this was about 5.30 on a Sunday morning. I called and uh, told him I thought I'd broken my neck. And he said, well, he said, well, Doc, I can't do anything for you. Anyway, you know, I, I wanted him to come and see me. Now, the thing about this doctor is he was at, at Meharry Medical School at the same time that my mother and dad were at Fisk University, which is where they met. 
and and they knew him, and he knew my parents, but he was not he would not come out to see anything about me. So then somehow I was able to put on a pair of pants and put on my old college jacket, and I walked to the hospital. Oh my god! Which was about five blocks away. With a broken neck. With a broken neck. Yes, Unbelievable. Indeed. I, I mean, even now when I think about it, I, I think that if I just, and it was still dark, and if I had just so much as stumbled, I, I think it would have just jostled my neck enough that it would have just... Paralyzed would, you. I probably would have done irreparable damage to my to my spinal cord. But somehow I made it, and uh, when I got to the hospital and finally got up to the window and told a receiving nurse why I was there, I told her I thought I'd broke my, uh, I broke my neck. And she didn't look up. She just continued taking uh, information from me. I didn't have any insurance. <laughs> mm. so, but anyway, she didn't want to go back and sit down. Well, every move was just, I mean, it almost hurts now to, <laughs> to, to talk about it and remember it. But anyway, they finally brought a gurney out and, and, and wheeled me in, into a room. Then a doctor came out the next day. I mean, I couldn't even really think. I mean, the pain was just that, that strong. I couldn't, I couldn't really think about anything except that I'm hurt. The doctor came out and put me on a cast. The cast covered from, from my lower torso to the, to the top of my head. So the only thing out of my, on this cast was my face, the top of my head, and my arms. Other than that, I, I looked like a, a, a zombie. So I was in that cast, and the doctor was wanting me to come back and, and uh, see him ever so often, every every two weeks. Well, that was a long time. All I could do was just stay in bed. And I, and I had a friend, and she would she would bring food by for me. Now, of course, I, I had my Baha'i books, so I was able to read a lot, and I was able to memorize a lot. And even now, I say that that was that was a way of, of Baha'u'llah saying, "I want you to learn." You you have a way of making a point. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I had to break my neck to get me to to sit down long enough to to do that. Now I appreciate the fact that I that I was able to get so much into the into the writing. Yeah. So Brandy, I have one last question for you. Mm-hmm. What do you think your life would have been if you had not become a Baha'i and run into the Baha'i faith? I cannot even guess. I cannot even speculate. I really cannot. I, it, it might be some something like one or two of my brothers. Both my I have two brothers, my older and, and younger. The younger one, especially, is very active. He, he does a lot of writing. He gets involved in social issues. And I can only surmise that I would be very active in social undertakings. But my understanding of of who I am and what my life really means in more of a cosmic sense of my relationship to to my creator and why I exist, I think I'd have a a lot of unanswered questions. And I I, I really think I would not be as as comfortable as as my brother seemed to be because I think those questions would would really nag at me. I cannot imagine who I would be or just how I would try to govern my life, what I would try to fulfill. I, I think there's something I need to fulfill but I wouldn't know what it was. I think I'd feel like an empty shell. That's as close as I can describe it. So what are you doing now these days? 
there are several areas that I'm involved in. I think they're all interconnected. I work with something called SSD, which is for successful self-direction. It's a means of, of helping a person understand who they are and how to make choices that lead us towards fulfilling our goal in life, which is to become spiritual beings. And we do that in prisons. There are only about three or four of us who are working with this. I'm very, very vitally involved in it. Healing Our Nation, it's a means of getting people into dialogue, especially those of different, diverse populations, especially white and black, and, of course, Latino and Native indigenous people, to get into dialogue where we... We share what our life is like, share our experiences of how racism has suffused our, all of our thinking and has uh, divided the people against one another. By having dialogues, we can build, and sharing our personal experiences, we can build a trusting relationship and a bonding relationship so we can work together to eliminate racial tendencies and become more aware of, of how we're affected by the uh, division of racism. Another, I'm writing a book, and I call it My Story, as opposed to history. <laughs> history, I think of as being the kings of old wanted to be well-remembered, so they had someone to write his story. Mm -hmm. If you wrote it well enough, you keep his head on. But I want to use the historical record to find out what is my story, in other words, to write what my life is about. And I, I made reference to it earlier about I have pictures of, of people and I record events of uh, jobs that I've had, positions that I've had, including I was dean of the Lewis Gregory Baha'i Institute in South Carolina. Which is a Baha'i school it's, in it's Hemingway. It's a Baha'i school for learning about, uh, not only about Baha'i faith, but, uh, but about our society, and, and how we can be agents to, to bring about a more spiritual-oriented society. Mm -hmm. So that was a big episode in my life, and I'm just about ready to have it published. Oh, good. I've been in touch with a publishing company, and it's called My Story. It's a delight to write it. Yeah. Another thing I, I'm very much involved in is doing volunteer work in the public schools. Now, here in, in Dayton, Ohio, one of the, the most recent levy for the schools, of Dayton Public Schools, failed. And I wrote some articles in, in the paper. The gist of one of them is that the school levy failed, but the community does not, does not have to flunk. If the community rises and does some hands-on, in-the-classroom work to assist the teachers with their most difficult task, which is, to maintain discipline, uh, help with the learning atmosphere in the classroom. That's the, that's the most challenge, the biggest challenge. And I know this from talking to so many teachers. They cannot teach, and many of them leave because of that. They don't get the support that they need. But my thing has been to try to get community members to volunteer to go into the classroom and assist the teachers directly in the classroom, not by giving lectures about being good, and not using profanity and not being disruptive, you know, but to just talk one-on-one -on -one with students because I've been doing it for a while. I, I used to be a substitute teacher, but I felt that I could be a bigger benefit to, to students 
and I have some uh, methods by which I, I engage students, and, and they've, they've proven to be quite successful. <laughs> I like for other people to share them, too, because I've been able to reach some students. I didn't mention that I was able to get on to uh, Central State University, which, which is where I taught international business. In the early 1980s, uh, I went for my MBA degree, and while I was there, I coached a debate team. But, but that's another thing I'm involved in, starting debate teams. And I started 10 years ago. I went, went back to Wiley College to, to coach a debate team, even though I wasn't on the faculty. I wasn't going to move there. But I was able to find some students who were interested in getting back into debate. Now, this is long before the movie. This was 10 years before the movie. And it was just an effort on my part, totally free. Now, I didn't want the college to pay me one penny uh, of even my own expenses of travel and, and other things, the materials that I bought and so forth. Well, I did make some progress because the students uh, really gravitated to it and, and, and they really loved it. Unfortunately, most of the students that I was working with, and I still have their names from 10 years ago, were seniors. They would not be back the next year, so I couldn't keep it going. And I tried to get one started at, at Texas College, and I'm still trying to get that. And, and I intend to, at my own expense, because it's, I've taken on it as, as a part of my mission in life, to get these debate teams started. But I want it on a higher level, not just two teams are facing off in the old classic-style debate that I was accustomed to, but there's several other kinds of presentations that students can learn how to make by giving an after-dinner speech, giving a expository talk. There are about 10 different categories that I learned about from uh, the coach at Texas Southern University in, in Houston, Texas, who's been coaching the debate team there for 60 years. And his team is now in England. His name is Dr. Thomas Freeman. In fact, some of his students who coached some of the players in the movie because Wilder did not have anybody who, who had any understanding of forensics at all who could even coach the, the actors. But they knew of Professor uh, Freeman there at Texas Southern. Uh, even though Professor Tolson left Wiley uh, without any recognition, he's not even featured in the yearbooks, here 60 years later, because of that movie, Denzel Washington has pledged $1 million to Wiley College for a debate team. So here, this professor who left under these clouded circumstances is now 60 years later the cause of Wiley College getting almost a million and a half dollars in grants. I just want to mention one other thing, that I had some monuments made to Professor Tolson and my dad, Professor Watson, and uh, Dr. Cox. This is at Wiley College? Yes, at Wiley College, yes. I'm afraid, Brandy, we've run out of time, but thank you very much for your interesting story. Thank you so very, very much. All right. Take care, Brandy. Love you, my brother. Okay. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Brandy Watson, a Baha'i now living in Ohio, whose father taught at Wiley College at the same time that Professor Tolson led his great debate team as depicted in the 2007 movie, The Great Debaters, starring Denzel Washington. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. 
I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. shell cause true freedom is in submission to his commandments and say who needs them but we're all wishing for something more mysterious than venomous his lips have disappeared from acting serious and watching all his numbers rise and fall he walks on by me singing in the subway his ears won't listen to me calling out that true freedom is in submission to his commandments we say who needs them but we're all wishing for something more remarkable than serious.
exhausting doing nothing matters You'll stay in your cocoon to save your wings And you double bar the door to your apartment But how did you think that you'd keep you safe from anything? True freedom is in submission to his commandments And you say, who needs them? But we're out wishing for something more mysterious than them and us True freedom is in submission to his commandments And you say, who needs them? But we're out wishing for something more remarkable than material True freedom is in submission to his commandments And you say, who needs them? But we're out wishing for something more fulfilling
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.